So today is part number two of our journey through the book of Exodus. Last week we gave an introduction to the book of Exodus, and today we're actually going to begin in the first four chapters looking at the story and the call of Moses. Moses, of course, was the great deliverer that God raised up to lead his people out of Egypt, out of the hand of Pharaoh, and we're going to see the beginnings of Moses' life and also his unique calling to be the great deliverer of Israel. Well, we pick up in chapter 1 with the first seven verses. In the first seven verses, the purpose of this is to connect what's happening in the beginning of the book of Exodus back to the book of Genesis. If you remember where we left off in Genesis a couple of sessions ago was that Jacob and his family, his sons, had journeyed down to Egypt because there was a famine in the land of Israel, or in the land of Canaan at the time. And so they journey down to Egypt to get food, and they encounter their long-lost brother, Joseph, who is now in second in command in Egypt and over the distribution of grain. And so they happen to run into Joseph, and Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, and his brothers and his father settle in the land of Egypt, where they are provided for, where their family can survive. And we find out at the end of Genesis that they are living, they're married, the children are married, they're having families and children in the land of Egypt, and they are populating this land. Well, as we come here to Exodus chapter 1, we begin with a list of names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt, and verse number 5 describes all the descendants of Jacob as there were 70 persons, and Joseph was already in Egypt. Uh, the number 70 is an interesting number, like many of the numbers in the Bible uh, represents something. 70 here is a multiple of seven, and seven is a number that symbolizes wholeness and completion. It can symbolize the fulfillment of God's will, and it's one of the important numbers that we'll see. Some other important numbers, we'll see the number 40, uh, we'll see the number 10 and 3, all have similar symbolism, and we'll see all of these numbers play a part of the story of Exodus. So there were 70 persons that came down, and what we have here is a description of how Israel grew and multiplied. In verse number 7 of chapter 1, it says, But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So this explains the fulfillment of the promise given to the patriarchs. That they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong. Now that language should be familiar with us because that language, they were fruitful and they multiplied, comes right out of Genesis 1, where humans are created by God and commanded to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. The same phrases are used to describe the renewal of creation after the flood to Noah. Uh, it's also used to describe the promise to Abraham, the promise to Isaac, and the promise to Jacob, and now the Israelites living in the land of Goshen. So this phrase is repeated over and over again, so it brings us back to the story of the covenant back in Genesis. Also, it brings us to the story of the covenant because of the covenant promise that God would make a great nation out of Abraham. 
that he would make a great nation out of him. And that's what's happening here. So there were two parts to the covenant, if you remember. There was the, I will make a great nation out of you, and I will bring you into the land. So this part is being fulfilled. God is making a great nation out of them. They are being fruitful, and they are multiplying, and they are increasing. But the other part of the promise seems farther away than it ever has before. The promise that God would bring them into the land. For now they found themselves living in the land of Egypt, but up until we pick up the narrative in Egypt, they've been living peacefully in the land of Egypt, and they've been provided for because of Joseph. But here we see the second part of chapter 1, and that is what goes wrong. And what goes wrong begins in verse number 8. So Exodus 1.8 says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to the people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, verse 11 says, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more the people multiplied, and the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. Verse 14, they made their lives bitter with hard service and brick and mortar and all kinds of work in the field. And in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So what happens here is we have this new king that has now arisen up. And whereas before the Israelites were warmly welcomed and granted great privileges, the perspective has changed because this new Pharaoh, from his point of view, the growing Israelites pose a threat. And he has no allegiance to Joseph. So he sees Israel as, well, if they're mighty, they could join the ranks of Egypt's enemies and come in rebellion. So his first line of attack is to get the people under control by making them slaves, to enslave the people. Well, this is a bad move by Pharaoh because in trying to control the Israelite population, he's really setting himself up against Israel's God. But what happens is slavery does not stop Israel. Because verse 12 said, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. So when slavery does not stop the Israelite population from growing, the Egyptians resort to infanticide, to the killing of infants. So what happens here, Pharaoh orders the Hebrew midwives to kill the male children at birth, that the midwives were to go to the women in labor, and when they birthed the child, if that child was a male, then the midwives were ordered to kill the male child. They were told to keep the female children alive, probably, and we're not told directly in the text, but probably because male children grow up to be soldiers. And female children, back in these ancient times, they grew up to be servants and slaves. And Israel, I mean, Egypt can continue to use the servants and slaves, but they wanted to snuff out all of the potential soldiers. 
So Pharaoh orders the Hebrew midwives to kill all the male children at birth. But the midwives refuse to implement this policy. And when they refuse to implement this policy, Pharaoh commands the Egyptians to throw every Hebrew boy in the Nile River. And this explains why Moses' mother will have to hide him in order to keep him safe. And in the longer view of things, this also will see as coming back upon the Egyptians to haunt them. For in the longer term, this explains why the death of the firstborn of Egypt in the last plague had a certain justice about it, that the Egyptians were punished by being made to suffer in the same way that they made the Israelites to suffer. So this is the backstory that we find here to the birth of Moses. So the backstory is that Pharaoh has now ordered all the children, the male children of Israel, to be thrown into the Nile River. When we come to chapter 2, we find Moses' birth and his upbringing. In chapter 2, we find that there is a man from the house of Levi who took a wife who was a Levite woman. Now, this is a very interesting uh, description here because it was the Levites who would become the priests in Israel and would serve as a mediator between God and the people. So we have a, a Levite man and a Levite woman who who come together and marry and have a son who would end up being the go-between between God and Israel. He would be the one to receive the law from God and give it to Israel. So it's even important here that Moses was born as a Levite, if you will. So Moses is born, and with this direct order from Pharaoh to kill all the children, they see Moses' mother, when he's born, sees that he is a fine child. Now, that's an interesting account there, but we'll talk about that in a moment. She sees he's a fine child, and she hides him for three months. But then when she can no longer hide him, she puts him in a basket and seals it up and places the child among the reeds by the riverbank in the water. And who comes along but Pharaoh's daughter comes along, She's walking by the river. She sees the basket. She opens it up. She sees the child, and she takes pity on him. She recognizes that he's one of the Hebrew children. And then uh, his sister says to Pharaoh's daughter, call a nurse from the Hebrew women, nurse the child for you. So she goes and gets the child's mother who nurses Moses. And then when Moses' nurse brings him to Pharaoh's daughter, and says the child has been nursed, and Pharaoh's daughter takes the child and makes him her son. And she names him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. So this is the story of Moses' birth, but there's more than meets the eye here. There's some really cool symbolism that we find here in the birth of Moses. First of all, is with the name Moses. Now, the name Moses is interesting because it holds two contexts. The name Moses has an Egyptian context to it, and it has a Hebrew context. What we have here in this story is the naming of Moses, Moses, because she says, I drew him out of the water. And that is the Hebrew interpretation of the name Moses. It means one who draws, one who is drawn. 
So she names him Moses. Now, who is she? Well, if she is Pharaoh's daughter, if Pharaoh's daughter names him Moses because she drew him out of the water, does Pharaoh's daughter know the Hebrew language? Does she know the language of slaves? Well, probably not. So if Pharaoh's daughter names Moses, she may have had the Egyptian context of Moses in mind. For there were other Pharaohs and there were other kings in Egypt, such as Amen Moses and Thut Moses. The name Moses in Egyptian means child of, and it was part of a longer name. It was a royal name. So it would fit Moses growing up in Pharaoh's household to have this name of Moses as part of a a longer name given the Egyptian terminology of it. But it's interesting that the Bible says he's not named Moses because of the Egyptian context, but he's named Moses because of the Hebrew context, speculating that maybe when the woman brought the child to Pharaoh's daughter that she recommended or she named him Moses because Moses means to draw out of or the drawer. And that hints at the future role that Moses would play. So this name means something in Hebrew. It means that as God, I mean, as Pharaoh's daughter, as Moses had been drawn out of the water for for safety, he was in a basket. She drew him out of the water for safety. So will God draw his people out of Egypt through the water of the Red Sea. So God will draw his people to safety just as Moses was drawn to safety. Now, when Moses was born, there's a word here that he is described in verse number two as being fine, a fine child. Now, what does that mean? Well, the word fine is the Hebrew word that we find used seven times in Genesis chapter one. And it's translated in Genesis chapter 1 that God saw what he made and it was good. And he called it good. Well, that's the same word that's used here to describe Moses. Describes him as it was good or describes him as fine. Then he's taken and he's put in a basket. Well, the term basket in verse number 3 of chapter 2 is the Hebrew word used for the ark in the story of Noah. It's the same word. So Moses was put in an ark to be protected from the waters of death. Just as Noah was placed in the ark to protect him from the waters of death in Genesis. We're also told that the basket that Moses was in was covered in pitch. And this also speaks of the ark covered in pitch. But what's interesting is the Hebrew word is the word kofer, which is used for the word atonement. So just like the ark, the basket Moses is in is covered in pitch. It's covered in the atonement. What would be atonement for the sins of the people? Described in Leviticus 17, where the sacrifices would atone for the sins of the people. And Jesus brings the ultimate atonement. So the word fine, the word basket, the word pitch, all brings us back to the stories in Genesis that we've already read. And that wouldn't be the only thing we'll see in just a few moments that there are more allusions back to Genesis. So leaving the birth of Moses, we find in verse number 11 of chapter 2 that Moses had now grown up. And 
Moses has three conflicts that we see here in Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. The first conflict is no sooner than Moses emerges into adulthood, we see him with blood on his hands in verse number 12. What we see here is that Moses looks on the burdens of his people, the Hebrews, and he sees an Egyptian's beating on one of the Hebrews, one of his own people. And he goes and he strikes down the Egyptian. He kills him and buries him in the sand. So this is the first conflict. So one of his first acts as an adult is to kill an Egyptian who was beating a Hebrew slave. Now this may perhaps seem to be impulsive, but it's really not. What we see here is Moses already being a deliverer. He delivered this Israelite slave from the mistreatment of an Egyptian and gives us a glimpse ahead to what Moses will be doing a little later on. The second conflict is Moses steps in to break a fight between two Hebrew slaves. So here you have two Hebrew slaves fighting each other. Moses steps in to break it up. Well, the aggressor basically tells Moses, you need to mind your own business. And he says in verse 14 to Moses, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Did you mean to kill me just as you killed the Egyptian? So first of all, we have one of Moses' own people complaining about his leadership. This won't be the last time that the Israelites have a problem with Moses' leadership. Grumbling and complaining will be a part of Moses' background noise for most of his career, especially when you come to the book of Leviticus. So you see his own people uh, question his own leadership and what he's doing. But also, we see that he makes this statement, Do you mean to kill me like you killed the Egyptian? And now Moses is found out. He knows people know about what he did. So when Pharaoh hears about it, he goes after Moses and tries to kill him. So what Moses does is he flees away from Pharaoh and he goes to the land of Midian and he sits by a well. And this is where a third conflict comes in. For he finds himself with the seven daughters of a man named Reuel. And Reuel, we're going to find out, is has seven daughters. And his seven daughters are being bullied by shepherds while they are trying to draw water from a well. It says the shepherds came and drove them away from the well, but Moses stood up and saved the seven daughters and watered their flock. So we see Moses now stepping into another confrontation, saving people, being a deliverer for these seven daughters of Reuel, the priest. So we find some fascinating facts here. First of all, Moses is coming to the rescue again. And when Moses comes to the rescue again, I want you to think his role as a deliverer. Second, at this well is where Moses will meet his wife, Zipporah. And it takes place at a well. Well, in Genesis, Isaac and Jacob also find their wives at a well. And Jacob even rescues Rachel by rolling away a huge stone and allowing her to water her sheep. 
All of this scene with Moses signals to the readers that Moses is a figure on par with the heroes of old, with the patriarchs, that he is to be held in high esteem just like the patriarchs. The third thing that we see is that Moses went from Egypt down to Midian, which will ultimately lead him to the mountain of God, Mount Sinai. And Moses' journey here foreshadows the journey of the Israelites that they will take in the future. As they leave Egypt and they go down to the mountain of God to receive the law of God and have a great encounter with God. So Moses' flight to Midian is kind of like a trial run. So up until this point, we see that Moses' role is foreshadowed as a deliverer and as a great man of God. But in our next section, beginning with chapter 2, verse 23, we find that Moses' mission is now defined. His mission will be clarified much more. So when we come down to chapter 2, verse 23, we see that during those many days, the king of Egypt died, the one that was after Moses died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out to God for help. And God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So this section introduces us to God's people calling on him for salvation. And God hears their cries. And it's interesting here that in the midst of their cries and in the midst of their groaning, God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God looked upon the Israelites. He took notice of them. And this is a key moment in the story. It now becomes clear why God delivers the Israelites from Egyptian slavery. He delivers them to keep a promise that he made to the forefathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the story now moves immediately to Horeb, the mountain of God, also called Mount Sinai, where Moses is keeping sheep. He's keeping his, the sheep of his father-in-law, and his father-in-law's name was Reuel, but it's also Jethro. So when you hear about Jethro, it's the same one as Reuel, and that is now Moses' father-in-law because of his wife Zipporah. So Moses, when we come to here down to chapter 3, Moses is keeping sheep. Now, when it says he's keeping sheep, I want you to think he's being a shepherd because Moses will be a kind of shepherd to the people of Israel. And this is the area where he's keeping sheep in Mount Horeb where he will give the law, where God will give the law to his people Israel. So God appears here to Moses in a fire at a burning bush. So we see here that Moses, in chapter 3, I want to read some scripture. In chapter 3, verse number 2, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush. Moses, Moses, he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing on is holy ground. 
And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. So this is God revealing himself in fire from a burning bush that is not consumed. Now another picture of this later on would be the lampstand in the tabernacle. For the lampstand is pictured as a burning tree that has seven arms. But it is here that Moses is introduced to his God. He might have grew up in the house of Pharaoh, but Moses' God was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And here God speaks to him and tells him that the place where he is standing on Mount Horeb is holy ground. For this is going to be the place where God leads his people out of Egypt and meets with Moses. And Moses and God will meet again on this mountain. They'll meet at Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai, the same mountain, where he will receive the law and the covenant for the people and establish his people as a nation. So this place is a very important place to Moses and to the people of Israel. That's why God says this place is holy ground. So this is the event, God calling Moses through the burning bush, revealing himself as God, kicks off the entire story of Exodus and Israel's transformation from slaves to a free independent nation. Now Moses doesn't know it yet, but he's getting ready to get his marching orders for a mission that's been on the agenda since the days of Abraham. So now what's going to happen is, Beginning with verse number 7 in chapter 3, the Lord declares his plan to rescue his people from slavery and to bring them into a land of promise, the land he promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a land that flows with milk and honey. And Moses' task is to persuade Pharaoh to let the Israelites go and to bring them to worship God on the mountain. For God says in verse number 7 of chapter 3, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard the cry because of their taskmasters, and I know their suffering. And I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and a broad land, a land that flows with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression which the Egyptians oppressed them with, Now God tells him in verse number 10, Come and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now that sounds like a great plan. I want you to see this. God has appeared to Moses in a great way in the burning bush. He's revealed himself as this covenant-making God. He says, I'm going to deliver my people. He's had this supernatural encounter. You would think Moses would be full of faith and ready to go and conquer, but not really. So what we have in chapter 3 and 4 is Moses raises a series of objections to his mission. That Moses isn't enthusiastic about this divine call of being a great deliverer. For he raises serious objections questions to God. So the first thing he asks God, the first question he raises, he says, God, who am I? That's the first number one. Who am I? Who am I that I should go and stand before Pharaoh? He doesn't see himself as some great deliverer, even though he's already done acts and tasks of delivering and saving other people. 
He does not see himself as worthy of this task. So how does God respond to this first objection? He says, I will be with you. And this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt and served God on this mountain. So the second question that Moses asked, he's already asked, well, God, who am I? Now he asks God, well, who are you? You know, God said, I will be with you, but who are you, God? He says the Israelites may not believe that God has really revealed himself to Moses. So he asked God, who will I tell them has sent me? What is his name? What if they ask me, what is, your, what is God's name? What do I tell him? And God here reveals the most important name of God that has been revealed to the Israelites. In Hebrew, it's only four letters. We pronounce the word today as Yahweh. Now, the name Yahweh, which is often capitalized as Lord in our Bible, is used in Genesis many times. But it seems that this is the first time that Moses and the people of Israel learn about this name. This name Yahweh is the covenant name of God. So when Moses says, who do I tell him your name is? God says to them, I, and God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. So God said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I'm to be remembered through all generations. So God reveals his covenant personal name of Yahweh, which means I am or I will be who I will be as the name that he's to tell the people of Israel. That's the second Objection. Who do I tell them has sent me? The third objection comes in chapter 4, verse number 1. God tells Israel, I mean, God tells Moses all that he's going to do to deliver Israel. And he says in verse or chapter 4, verse number 1, he says, well, they will not believe me. This is the third objection. They will not believe me. He says in verse 1 of chapter 4, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. So the next problem Moses anticipates is that people will not believe him. So to answer their doubts, he's given three signs to persuade him and them that God has truly spoken to him. The first one is Moses' staff turns into a serpent when he throws it on the ground. And then when he goes to pick the serpent up, it turns back into a staff, this miraculous, this miraculous sign. And then he tells Moses to put his hand in his coat and his hand comes out leprous, like a leopard, white as snow. When he puts it back in and brings it out, his hand is healed again. And it's just like the rest of his flesh. And then he gives him a third sign. He says, take some water and pour it on the ground and the water will turn to blood. So when he goes before the people, when he goes before Pharaoh, he's to perform these things and they will listen to him. So God answers the third objection. Well, the fourth objection is Moses immediately, even after seeing these signs, now Moses has seen the burning bush. He's had God talk to him. He's, God's declared him of this great deliverance. He's shown him these three miraculous signs and Moses is still raising objections. So the next thing Moses says is, I am not eloquent in speech. I am not a good talker. 
And in response to this objection, God assures Moses that because he is the creator, that he will be with Moses' mouth and will teach him how to speak. And then in verse 13 of chapter 4, Moses plainly says, please send somebody else. He said, oh my Lord, please send somebody else. So to deal with this, God appoints Aaron, Moses' brother, to speak on Moses' behalf. So let me just say that Moses is a really stubborn person. Out of seeing every miraculous thing God is doing and God trying to convince him that, hey, I'm the creator, I'll provide for you, I'll be with you, I'll tell you what to speak, he still says God sends somebody else. So God compromises with Moses and appoints Aaron. So Moses will speak to Aaron, and Aaron will speak to the people on Moses and God's behalf. And that brings us to the last section that we want to look at today, and this is chapter 4, verses 18 through 31. The Lord again urges Moses to return to Egypt, but warns him that Pharaoh will be very reluctant to let the people leave. And on top of this, God would actually harden Pharaoh's heart. If you remember and recall back to the dealings in Egypt with, say, Abraham. You know, when Abraham lied about his sister Sarah because he feared for his life, or he lied about his wife Sarah and said that this is my sister. Well, when the Egyptian kings found out about it and found out that God was on Abraham's side, he let Moses go. He told Moses, yes, you can leave. Well, imagine what would happen if Moses came before Pharaoh and he does these miraculous signs and Pharaoh says, oh yes, I see God is with you. I'm going to let your people go. And he lets them leave. Well, then Pharaoh would be credited with letting the people leave. But that's not what God is going to let happen here. And and this really shows us the sovereignty of God. God says in verse number 21, he says, you'll go before Pharaoh with all the miracles I put in your power but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. God is actually going to harden Pharaoh's heart so he will not let the people go. And that's going to cause even greater signs to happen in Egypt. That's when God is going to pour out plagues upon Egypt. So instead of Pharaoh just letting the people go, because of the goodness of his heart or because he was afraid, God's going to harden Pharaoh's heart where he refuses. And then God is going to bring upon these seven plagues upon Egypt, showing that God is not going to let Pharaoh let the people go. God is going to use his power to deliver his people and to defeat Pharaoh's army and to make a spectacle out of the greatest nation on the planet at the time. So he says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Then we come to verses 24 through 26. And this is a very troubling story that seems to just come out of nowhere because God has just offered this great call to Moses and made him this great deliverer and gives him this great plan. And then in verse 24, we read that God is looking to put Moses to death. For Moses is on the way back to Egypt with his sons and his wife. 
He's on his way back to Egypt, and at a lodging place, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Now, why is God all of a sudden, out of nowhere, looking to put Moses to death? On the surface, this doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And then we find Moses' wife Zipporah takes a flint and circumcises her son, takes the foreskin and touches Moses' feet. Now, this is very unusual, and I've read a lot of commentaries, and most Bible commentaries and commentators find this very unusual as well and almost seemingly out of place. Why is God mad? Why is God looking to kill Moses? Why does Zephora circumcise her son and takes the foreskin and touches it on Moses' feet? And then she declares, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. And then God's anger is appeased, and God does not kill Moses. And it was then said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. So these three verses are very unusual. They seem very out of place. Uh, People have speculated, and maybe this was just added by a later editor, you know, where it doesn't make sense. What is it talking about? It's very vague. And the best explanation that I've found that it could come up with and it's kind of stuck in there. We're not given a backstory or an explanation. Is that maybe this has to do with Moses's failure to circumcise his son? We're told Moses has a son, and he now has at least two sons. And the speculation is is that Moses failed to circumcise his son. And going forward, circumcision would be a prerequisite for the participation in the Passover in Exodus chapter 12, verse 48. So as Moses' mission was in keeping with the covenant promises made to a patriarch, to the patriarchs, circumcision was given to the patriarchs as a sign of the covenant. So it could be God was angry because Moses failed to circumcise his son, so his son was uncircumcised, and therefore Moses had disobeyed God, and when Zipporah circumcises her son, that makes sort of an atonement and spares Moses' life. So the decisive action of Zipporah saves the family. Uh, And so that's the best explanation I've come up with with these three verses. Those verses are unusual, and they don't seem to really fit the narrative. But anyway, there they are, and that's how we're going to explain those verses today. Well, the final few verses of Exodus chapter 4, the Lord speaks to Aaron and tells him to go out and meet Moses, and Moses and Aaron meet. Moses explains what happened with the encounter with God, and then Moses and Aaron together in verse 29 gather all the people and the elders. They speak the words of the Lord that God had spoken to Moses, and they did the signs in the sight of the people, and all the people believed. They knew that God had heard their prayers. They know that now God has visited them to bring them deliverance, and they bowed their heads and worshiped. So this is what we find here with the backstory of Moses and how his birth and his salvation during his infancy was important and what led them to the place of now being a deliverer. The great call of Moses we see in the burning bush, the striving with God over this call. But again, God has set everything up to use Moses to become a great deliverer. So in our next session, we're going to pick up the story in chapter 5 when we find Moses and Aaron before Pharaoh. And next time, we'll look at the plagues and leading up to the Passover. 
So again, we hope that this session has been enlightening to you. Thank you for joining us today. God bless.